Hello, welcome to My Camino, the podcast. I'm Dan Mullins. It's great to have your company. You know, some people cut the straps off of their backpack to save weight, <laughs> cut off buckles and straps to save ounces. And I had a two-pound <laughs> jar of peanut butter. And my friend Tom and that German couple almost fell out of their chairs laughing. They said, <laughs> get rid of the peanut butter. <laughs> What's wrong with you? <laughs> That voice you just heard is John H. Clark, an American pilgrim with an amazing story. But before we get to John, Merry Christmas. We're preparing for a family Christmas here, full of all the usual trimmings. The tree is up, gifts for everyone, and a long and luscious lunch on Christmas Day. I just wanted to say thank you for your support, and I hope your Christmas is full of light and love, the true spirit of Christmas and the holidays. And a reminder, I truly, truly appreciate your support. It is is the gift that keeps giving. So thank you and Merry Christmas. This is a weekly podcast about El Camino de Santiago, the way of St. James. James was one of Christ's apostles. He is the patron saint of Spain, Guatemala, Nicaragua, and of fishermen. He was a humble fisherman before Jesus invited him to be a fisher of men. It's quite the journey to walk a pilgrimage to the remains of someone who was by Christ's side at the Last Supper. Sure, there are articles everywhere debunking claims James's remains are beneath the cathedral in the city bearing his name. But to arrive in that city, Santiago de Compostela or St. James under a field of stars, is to arrive in a place blessed by the journey of millions before you. Grab a seat for the Pilgrim's Mass at midday. You're secretly hoping the Botafumero swings from the ceiling. You might stand in line at the pilgrim's office. You may meet the Irish nun who walks the line each day, inviting pilgrims to pray a while in the small chapel. You'll be asked if you walked for religious reasons or for adventure. And it doesn't matter which box you tick. You're a pilgrim either way. And you've arrived. The American philosopher John Dewey said, Arriving at one goal is the starting point to another. Many say your Camino starts once you arrive in Santiago de Compostela. So, arriving at the cathedral housing St. James's remains is the start of your Camino. Arriving at one goal is the starting point to another. John H. Clark is a former newspaper journalist and author of the book Camino, Laughter and Tears Along Spain's 500-Mile Camino de Santiago. He wrote, while planning his first Camino back in 2011, he learned that once the Camino gets a hold of you, it doesn't let go. When the spirit gets inside you, there's no turning back. You have to go. We're kindred spirits. I knew I had to talk to him. He realised it was time to embrace uncertainty. He's on the line. John H. Clark, welcome, Pilgrim. Oh, thank you, Pilgrim. Yeah, it's nice to talk to you. In your article, you said, I was turning 54 years old and starting to wonder... What my life was really all about. Why were you wondering that? What prompted that thought? Let's see, I was 54, and I had started reconnecting, I guess, with some old high school. I guess that's, I don't know, is that about the time Facebook came out, about 10 years ago? And so I'm reconnecting with some, some old high school classmates and such as that, and seeing all these highly successful people and I, I just felt like I had uh, had kind of come up short and not not used all my talents and 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 uh, 
and made as much out of my life as I as I could have if I hadn't been such a bonehead when I was so when I was in my twenties. I, I I wasted a lot of time in my late teens and all through my twenties. Uh, in my twenties was the 1980s was pretty much my 20s and uh i don't really remember much about the 1980s if you get if you know what i mean and uh i was doing a lot of uh a lot of things i shouldn't be doing that that uh were not were not conducive to uh preparing for a, a successful future shall we say i just felt like i I'd let myself down. I felt like I'd uh, not done, you know, not made good decisions. And here I was, 54, and just in a in a crisis, sort of. Yeah, right. And so if you get this realization that you perhaps haven't done enough, why do you think the Camino appealed to you? I was one thing it's I wrote about it in part of the book you know all these these other people I knew were you know one guy's a started his own business and was a multimillionaire and another guy was a had become an orthopedic sports surgeon and I think he was the team doctor for a pro football team at one time and I knew another guy that was in the hall of fame and had won a national championship as a quarterback in college football and all these other things. And I knew I was just as smart and just as athletic and just as this and just as that as these people, but I didn't take advantage of it. I didn't, for some reason, I just went in a different direction (laughs) than a lot of people. And I was talking to an old high school friend of mine who had she I think her parents bought her a cruise for her graduation present and she had really never been anywhere either at that point but then she goes on this cruise and sees she's so she's sailing through the Caribbean and that gets that gets her the bug to want to do big things and so she ends up traveling around the world and living in all these different countries and everything and I thought, well, you know, I'm probably not going to become a multimillionaire and I'm I'm not a doctor, but maybe I can go to Europe and travel or something. And so she actually mentioned the Camino de Santiago, something that she had never done, but she had heard about it. So I said, she said, you ought to check it out. So I started doing research and on the internet. And once I start I'm kind of obsessive compulsive also and one of my many hangups. <laughs> and uh, so I started researching the crap out of this thing and it just sounded so cool. One of the things that appealed to me was all the people talking about the spiritual side of it, how they were really affected by the spiritual part of it and how it had changed their life. And I was not in a good place at that point. And that sounded pretty appealing to me. Was there a realization that you'd never done anything big like your colleagues? Or or was it this 
or was it always sort of lurking in the background, a feeling that you'd always had? I ask that because there are plenty of people who never do anything big and they're as happy as they could possibly imagine being. What is it that you think that was it always something in the background or this sort of all of a sudden light bulb moment? You know what? I've never done anything and I want to do it. I think it was sort of a lingering thing, like you say. Mm, yeah. You know, one of uh, one of my biggest regrets was always when I was in high school, I, when I was growing up as a kid, I started playing sports when I was eight. And I played all the way until I was 15, played everything. And I was really good at everything. And I loved it. That was my life, you know, year round, every day, anytime I could, all the time playing some kind of sports. And I just quit when I was 15 and never played sports again. And it was always something that really bothered me because I never, you, know, you can't go back and, and, and find out what might have been. It's too late now. So there was always these kind of regrets of not accomplishing everything that I think I could have accomplished. So when I got when I found out about the Camino, I thought, well, I can do this. And the more I read about it and the more I investigated it, it's like I, like you said in the beginning. It's like once the once the the Camino gets its claws into you, you're going to go. I tell, I still tell people that it just starts, it just gets into, it just gets into your soul somehow and, uh, draws you in. Yeah. I love that. The, the, there's a, a great quote from the writer, Bob Goff, who said, embrace uncertainty. Some of the most beautiful chapters in our lives won't have titles until much later. So what did your family make of this decision? Because you you write in the in the book that you never travelled as a child. You, you you never travelled much at all in your life. You really uh, you really stayed very local. It wasn't travel wasn't a part of your life. And here you are going to the family saying, "I'm going to go and walk the Camino in Spain." What did they make of it? Well, uh, the only person I really told about it was my wife, and she was all for it because she knew how miserable I was. Mm. And she, she actually said, I think you need to go. You need to go. And so she was all behind me. She was behind me 100%. Yeah, and you wrote that you were traveling to the airport in the car with your wife and you were re <laughs> really yeah. nervous. And you said something to yourself. You said, come on, man, it's not like you're going to jail or something. The first hardest thing was punching that button to buy the airline ticket. It was like, okay, am I really going to do this? I don't know. So that was kind of uh, that was kind of the the point of no return when I finally got up the nerve to buy the airline ticket. And then I don't remember exactly when that was in the time frame because I went and I started researching and and training in January, and then I went in June. Right. So I, I researched every day and, and walked and trained and, you know, bought my hiking shoes and my backpack and all that sort of stuff and and tried to talk myself out of it the whole time. <laughs> 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 Tell us about arriving in Madrid, because I, I, I imagine this enormous adventure, you find yourself now 
way out of your comfort zone and in a in a, uh, in a yeah. city, in a region, in a culture that doesn't speak English. I knew, you know, I had Spanish from high school and I and I actually have a Spanish minor from college. But I can read and write Spanish pretty well. And I can speak Spanish well enough to get my point across. But the problem comes when they answer me verbally. <laughs> so I, I arrive in Madrid and I haven't slept on the plane at all. I looked around at one point on the plane and the lights were all off and the entire plane has pillows behind their head and covers up to their neck sound asleep except for John. I didn't sleep a wink. So I get to Madrid and I'm, I guess I'm probably jet lagged by then and tired and disoriented and everything else. And the, the airport in Madrid is gigantic. The, it's just hilarious when you when you check in at the airport, when you check in at Madrid to fly out of Madrid, it can take you forty five minutes to walk to your gate. Yeah, it's the thing is so huge. So I get there, and I find my bag. All I have is my backpack with a bunch of stuff in it, my shoes, and my hiking poles. In a all that stuff is in a larger duffel bag. So I have that, and I'm dragging that around. I go down to ground transportation because during my research, I had found go look for when you when you. I was going to go to Pamplona first, and it said go out look for a red bus with a 200 in the window, and that bus will take you to Pamplona. So I find ground transportation, walk outside. And there's like a hundred buses and people everywhere. And there's buses going to every city you could think of except for Pamplona. So I'm dragging this 50 pound duffel bag around, tired, asking people who work there, where's the bus to Pamplona? And I can ask the question. But I can't understand. I can't understand the answer. <laughs> so I'm just I'm beside myself, and I finally see this bus way off in the distance, and I drag my duffel bag over there, and I walk up to the door where you get onto the bus, and there's this pretty little girl sitting there. This is the bus driver, and I say I look up at her and I go Pamplona, and she smiles real big and goes See. And I thought, thank God. <laughs> so I get on the bus and she takes me to Pamplona. And I, no, she doesn't take me to Pamplona. She takes me to the downtown bus station in Madrid where I have to get on another bus. So I managed to buy a ticket to Pamplona. And then I have to wait about two or three hours for a bus. And the bus station, I don't want to, I'm not, I don't want to be negative or, you know, say anything bad, but the bus station in downtown Madrid is not, not real premium, I guess you could say. And I'm sitting there waiting for my bus to Pamplona, looking around. All the announcements of the buses coming are in Spanish, and they're very garbled. The sound system is horrible. 
And I'm sitting there thinking, what have you done? <laughs> That's all I could think is, what have you done? <laughs> I'm sitting there by myself, downtown Madrid, Spain, and I don't have a clue what I'm doing. It was an inauspicious beginning. But a few hours later, tired, lost, and wandering the streets of Pamplona, you meet yeah. your Spanish angel. Right, right. Yeah, that was another of my uh, boneheaded, uh, non-experienced traveler moves. So I get to Pamplona, get out of the bus. The, the bus station at Pamplona is underground. So I'm walking around, and there are stairways. You know, it's like a subway station in New York or something. There's yeah. different staircases to take you up to ground level. And I don't know which one to take. I, I made a reservation at uh, the Europa Hotel. I think it's called the Hot- Hotel Europa, right there on the, on the square in, in Old Town Pamplona. I was going to spend one night. And it said, it seemed, it seemed like it said when I made the reservation, it was like 0.2 miles from the bus station. So I thought, okay, it's right there. No problem. So I finally decide which staircase to take up out of the bus station, and I walk up into the daylight, and I'm on a sidewalk, and there's all kinds of people walking back and forth, and I'm looking right, left, straight ahead, behind me. I don't see nothing. And I'm thinking, for God's sakes, where do I go now? (laughs) So here comes this guy, young guy, walking down the sidewalk, and I go, senor, senor, and he goes, no, 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 no. He keeps walking. And then this young lady comes, friendly-looking young lady comes walking up. She's, she's just going to walk by. And I, I asked her, and I said, Senora, and I asked her in Spanish if she knew, if she was familiar with the Hotel Europa. And she answered me in Spanish, which, like I said, I can understand it pretty well. And she said, yeah, I'm going there right now. You, you want to walk with me? And I thought, yes, please. <laughs> So you're led to the Hotel Europa, you're finally on the Camino, another couple of days pass and you realize, wow, my backpack is too heavy. How heavy was Uh, it? Shoot, I realized that uh, in the first, probably within the first hour. So I I scouted out the beginning of the Pamplona that first day. I went walking around the plaza there and found where to go. You know, they have signs everywhere. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so I didn't sleep a wink that night. I actually stayed two nights in Pamplona. I decided to stay another night to to rest up some more. And then I so that morning I took off. I left something. I left a few things in the hotel room. I took I, I don't remember how many paperbacks I thought I took. I took some paperback books because I thought I was going to like sit around and read or something. Uh-huh. So I immediately dumped those because I just knew instinctively my backpack was too heavy. They People recommend that you go with 10% of your body weight in your backpack and don't go much over that. And I probably, I should have had about, uh, I weighed 215 pounds then and I get my, my backpack weighed at least 35 or 40 pounds, oh. which is way too much. And, 
So by the, I, I barely got out of Pamplona and my shoulders were already hurting. And uh, I had been all the training I'd been doing at home. I trained a grand total of once a week on a Saturday morning. I would load up my backpack, put on my hiking shoes, and go walking down the highway. Turn around, walk as far as however far, and turn around and come back. And that was my training. And I, I worked my way up to 20 kilometers. On a Saturday morning, I could do that in, I don't know, like, it seems like it was about three, three and a half hours. So I thought, okay, I'm ready. I can do 20K, and it only takes me about three hours. So I get there, and that first day, with this 40-pound backpack, and I'm going uphill, downhill, sideways, <laughs> everything else, not just walking on the shoulder of a flat highway. <laughs> and I go... I walked 8.7 miles the first day, and I was done. I come to this town, Uterga, the first town you come to after the Alto de Perdon. Mm -hmm. And I see this sign that says Albergue on my left. So I walk up this long sidewalk, and I walk in the door, and there's this girl with long, dark hair behind the cash register counter, and again, I employed my research, and I walked up to her, and I said, I commas, do you all have a bed? And she said, see. And I, I thought to myself, oh, thank God. <laughs> I was so tired. And I think the, the bed was 12, 12 euros, I think. And she said, do you want dinner? And this was out in the middle of nowhere, and I was dead tired. And I, so I said, yeah. So I paid, I don't remember how much extra for dinner. And then she showed me upstairs, and I went up and took a shower and this and that. And then when I came back down for dinner, there were three other people that were going to have dinner. A big, tall, gray-haired man and a couple from Germany. And the, the girl, same girl who greeted me said, do y'all want to sit together? And we said, sure. So we all four sat together, and I was, I was telling them the adventures of my backpack. And they were giving me advice on how to, uh, how to wear it. How to, this one guy, Tom, who became a, a really good friend of mine, we're still friends, the tall Norwegian guy, he said, what you need to do is crank that waistband, that waist strap down as tight as you can get it, and then a little bit tighter. And that takes the weight off your shoulders. And then I proceeded to tell them some of the stuff I had packed, which one of the things I had packed was I had read in, it, in my research again that peanut butter was a great snack to have on the Camino, and you couldn't find it over there. So I said, well, let me get some peanut butter. But me, Mr. Excess, if one's enough, two's better, didn't buy a small jar of peanut butter. Picture the biggest jar they have on the grocery store shelf, and that's what I bought. And when I told them I had this whatever two-pound, you know, some people cut the straps off of their backpack to save weight, <laughs> cut off buckles and straps to save ounces. 
and I had a two pound <laughs> jar of peanut butter. And my friend Tom and that German couple almost fell out of their chairs laughing. They said, <laughs> get rid of the peanut butter. <laughs> What's wrong with you? <laughs> so I did. And I, that's, that may be one of the first things I ditched, the paperback books, then the peanut butter. You know, basically you, you wear, you, you take two, two sets of clothing, one to wear, one for your backpack. Then at the end of the day, you wash what you wear and you put on the clean stuff. And you just rotate the whole time. I had, I had probably four or five changes of clothes. Yeah, right. All kinds of, uh, you know, uh, drugstore items and toiletries and probably a giant bottle of shampoo. And just, I started dumping all this stuff. I left, I remember leaving some clothes on a park bench somewhere. And it was, it was, it was pretty amazing. You managed to finish the Camino despite all of these setbacks. You said, that you found yourself asking questions of yourself. And I love this part in one of the articles I read that, that really prompted me to reach out to you. It, you said, it took four or five days before I started to get comfortable. And after about 10 days, I never wanted to leave. It must have yeah. been about day three, as I was walking alone through a giant cornfield or something, that the first wave of Camino spirituality took a hold. As my feet shuffled through the dirt pathway, I thought about how many millions of feet had shuffled along the exact same way over past centuries, and I realized somehow that everything was going to be all right. Somehow, I knew the Camino was going to take care of me, and it did. Yeah. So take us back to yeah. that day, that realization, everything's going to be I'm okay. A- it must have been an enormous relief for somebody who was so frightened and who was so far out of their comfort zone. You must have been just overwhelmed with relief. Oh, I, yeah. I, I'll never forget that. Um, and I really did. I felt exactly what you what you read just then. I just started thinking of, you know, well, I started out, you know, I was I was after the spiritual uh, gaining some spirituality out of the whole deal. That, that was kind of my mission. And so I started out every day when I started walking in the beginning, I would say I would say something like, OK, God, what what am I supposed to learn today? And so I'm walking along that day and I'm thinking about what you said, you know, I, I'm actually my feet are actually kicking up the same dust that people that millions of other people have kicked up. Just amazing to think about because the Camino has been going on since like the seventh century or something. And somehow, you know, something, some, the universe or God or whatever, my guardian angel or, Something, just let me know. Yeah, man, everything's going to be all right now. You're, you're going to be all right. And like you said, the Camino is going to take care of you. And everything was all right after that. Yeah, how fantastic. What a great realization. You also wrote in that same article, I learned so many things about myself and about the world, mostly about the people of the world. 
And here's something yeah. that I discovered. You said no matter where someone is from, no matter what their race, creed, religion, background, social status, etc., people everywhere are basically the same. Deep down inside, everyone is looking for essentially the same three things in life. To be loved, to feel safe, and to be happy. I really believe that. Don't you? Do you believe that? I I couldn't agree more. When I read it, I really thought you summed it up perfectly, to be honest. Yeah. I want to say that's the best part of the Camino is the people that you meet. Yeah. The self-realizations are right up there too, but some a lot of that self-realization comes from meeting these other people who you would normally never meet or associate with and learning what you were just talking about, that people are all the same. You know, I, I there it's more complicated than that, but it's more complicated than what I'm about to say. But I, I think if it, if it were just up to the regular folks in the world, that there, there wouldn't be any war. There wouldn't be all this garbage going on because I interacted with people from everywhere. And we all got along just fine. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And it's, it's been such a revelation for you and for all of us who have walked the Camino because those couple of things, those three things that you spoke about, to be loved, to feel safe, to be happy, we kind of put that responsibility in other people's hands often, don't we? And you talk, oh, yeah. you talk about governments and you talk about the people that are supposed to guide us via those three principles. Even the church has let us down so many times. Yeah. Getting out onto the Camino, you realize after a short while, don't you, that really it's just kindness. That, yeah. And that's why you're so surprised to find kindness around every corner on the Camino. And, <laughs> You know, Maybe, yeah. You know, that might be right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's such a lovely thing. Hey, tell us about the book, Camino, Laughter and Tears Along Spain's 500-Mile Camino de Santiago. When did the idea of the book come? And, and tell us about the process of writing. Yeah, I, uh, when I went, I've been there three times now. So when I went the first time in 2011, I decided to keep a, a blog I didn't take a phone. That was just the beginning of pretty much the beginning or close to the beginning of the cell phone era, I think. Maybe maybe it maybe was a little bit before that, but I didn't I didn't take a phone at all, which oh. really surprised some people. I I took a small camera that I had strapped onto my belt loop and I had uh I had started a blog account with uh some blog place i don't remember and so i did i i guess i knew there were uh from my research that there were coin operated uh computers at different uh bars and albergues and stuff so i was going to keep a blog on the way along the way and that's what i did i would uh in the evenings i would uh put a put a euro in the computer and type up my blog and I also I took a journal and I would handwrite some notes too and then when I got back I didn't really have any intentions of writing a book I was just going to write the blog and then I actually I got a a part-time job with a 
uh, as a proofreader for a book publishing company. And I showed them this other book that I had written called Finding God. And they liked it and they published it. So I said, well, I've got this other idea for a book, which was the Camino book. And so that's how I decided to go ahead and write that one. They liked it too and they published it. And uh, it's been, it's probably my most popular book. It's real. It's done. It, you know, I haven't been able to to make any payments on my Jaguar from it, but yeah, but, <laughs> but it, it does pretty well. You know, <laughs> there are other books too. Peace of mind: How to be happy and positive in troubled times. Um, the thirty day yeah. optimism solution: How to change from pessimist to optimist in thirty days or less. Everyday heroes: Stories about ordinary Americans doing extraordinary things. And simple truth: You are enough. Learn to love yourself as you deserve. But I, you just yeah. mentioned Finding God in Texas. Tell us about that book. I've always enjoyed writing. Uh, you know, I used to be uh, a full-time newspaper reporter. And then I, des- I decided to get, I wanted to do something. I wanted to shift gears in my career. And I went into teaching school. And so my first summer... The the first summer after my first year of school teaching, I didn't know what to do. I th- when I woke up that first day of summer, I thought I needed to go to work or I was going to get in trouble or something. So I kind of I didn't know what to do with my first summer. Now when the second summer came around, I was ready. <laughs> I was ready for summer vacation. I knew what to do, but I decided I was going to write a book. So this was this would have been about two thousand five or six and I was in the midst of that spiritual searching period which I'm shoot I'm still in the middle of a spiritual searching period hmm. I think it's going to be a lifelong process but I did I, one thing I learned from journalism is that if I have a question about something somebody else probably does too I'm not the only one so I had all these questions about God and heaven and hell and this and that the Bible So I said, you know what, I'm going to go and interview people from all over the state of Texas and ask them what they believe in and why they believe what they believe. Mm -hmm. So that's what I did. I drove east, west, north, south, all over Texas, over parts of two summers, two weeks in that first summer and I think two weeks in the next summer. And I would just stop people at random. I would just see somebody that looked like, you know, they wouldn't scream in my face or or attack me if I went up and talked to them. And I told them what I was doing, and I almost, only out of like uh, 30 people, only two or three, well, only two or three ever turned me down. I, everybody gave me an interview, and and the thing that was remarkable about that is that they didn't just say, yeah, I believe in God, you know. It was the why that gave so many incredible stories about the, you know, the, the tragic events and the triumphant events in the people's lives that led them to believe what they believe, which was just amazing. By yeah. the time, by the time I got to like my second or third interview and people were just spilling their guts and pouring their hearts out to me, it was just amazing. I was like, this is going to be pretty good. <laughs> Wow. 
What a great idea. Yeah. I, f- I find it fascinating what some people believe. Oh, yeah. And why? Yeah, I've got all kinds of a wide variety of beliefs. It was really good. Yeah. I'm thinking about doing it, uh, actually doing about, thinking about doing a sequel to that one. There you go. One of these days. Yeah, one of these days. I love that saying, one of these days. <laughs> well, indeed, these days you're involved in health and fitness. You're, you're a big advocate for sort of blokes our age or, or older looking after themselves and keeping fit. Where did that come from? Yeah, that was a, this was another crisis. I had another crisis about, uh, well, it was actually when I turned 60. So I went to the Camino the first time when I was 53 or 54. And, uh, you know, when I got back from that, my wife and I were talking about it, and she said, it, might, it probably wasn't immediately, but not too long after I got back, she said, you know, you're different. You're, you're really kind of re- more relaxed and stuff. But then by the, when, when my 60th birthday started approaching, it really started to freak me out because never, I've never been a real forward looker. To, I've never looked way ahead in the future for some reason. You know, some people have their whole life planned out. Yeah. And I just, I've never been that way. I don't know why. I'm not, I think, I wish I would have been more of a planner, but so I never really thought about it. You know, I'm 55, 56, 57, no big deal. I didn't even think about it. But then when, here comes 60, and that number just really blew my mind. For some of the same reasons, you know, feeling uh, feeling not as accomplished as I as I thought I should be, and now I'm going to be old and unaccomplished, <laughs> at least in my mind. So that was just it was seriously depressing. But around that time. I reconnected with a guy that from my childhood who has been a pole vaulter all his life. He was a championship pole vaulter in college. And then he's now he's a world champion in master. It's called masters. Yeah. Pole vault, which is basically the senior tour. (laughs) And, uh, and I started, we started talking about it and, about I don't know six months or so later, he and I started uh, training together. He started teaching me how to pole vault. I'd never pole vaulted in my life. I was sixty years old. By that time, I weighed about two hundred and forty-five pounds. Oh, which I should weigh a good weight for me is about one eighty-five or one ninety. So I was a mess, and I was all I did is I was still teaching school then and I I was totally burnt out I I hated it and so I'm 60 years old hate my job fat and out of shape all these regrets over my life and just sitting at home at night uh, basically drinking myself to sleep And then I met this guy, Bubba, 
I, I knew him from childhood, but we hadn't talked to each other since we were kids. Right. And, and, uh, so I started learning how to pole vault and six, it took me six months before I stopped drinking and started really getting in shape. I would go, I would go practice every Sunday, but then, uh, I, I didn't change anything else. I was enjoying it. It was fun to be, you know, athletic again. Yeah. And it was, it was a big challenge. But then after six months, I started, you know, I, I said to my wife, at some point I said to my wife, you know, I don't think there's any big, fat, drunken pole vaulters in the world. <laughs> and she said, yeah, probably not. And so now I'm down to uh, right around 200 pounds. I've lost all that weight. I've uh, competed nationally in the pole vault. Um, competed in some state senior games, the national senior games, and gone to the national pole vault summit in Reno a couple of times. And and it's just changed my life. And uh, and it's you know the thing about it is it took care of one of my big regrets. Really, it, well it. it it mitigated one of my big regrets because I can never go back and find out what might have been in my athletic career. But at least I'm an athlete again. So, it, you know, it's it's not near as bad as it was, the regret. What a great story. That's fantastic. Yeah. That's really amazing. And And I wonder then, in this enlightenment, in a way, of the last sort of 10 or 15 years, what have you learned yeah. about yourself, John? Um, God, man, oh, the, I hate questions about myself. What have I learned about myself? Um, you know, I've always known I can do pretty much anything that I set my mind to, which that's really true for anybody. And... I'm still trying to I'm still trying to really figure out the big purpose for my life, you know, what my mm-hmm. life is going to have been all about. Sure. My purpose right now is to try to inspire other people who are in the same shape I was in when I turned 60. Because, you know, you see all these people so out of shape and, and looking so miserable and it doesn't have to be that way. You know, you, you don't have, I think people just give up because, you know, it's just part of getting older and blah, blah, blah. No, it's not. It doesn't have to be. Wow. I think I really, I really think age is just a number. Well, if that's what you've sort of, uh, I guess, uh, uh, not necessarily a future, but if that's a sort of service or a role that you've found for you, found, if that's a sort of service or role that you've found for yourself, it's a pretty good thing. That's a great thing. Yeah. That's a really great I thing. Think, I think if uh, if this is the way it ends up, that, that that's not a bad way to end it up. 100%. That's a great way to look at it too. Now, just yeah. before we finish up, I want you to tell us a Camino story. I forget how long it was, but how long I'd been walking, but I was walking and I got this little called a hot spot on the ball of my left foot. 
just a little red spot, not not a round spot, but a a, a uh, not a square, but what's an elongated square called? <laughs> a rectangle. A rectangular square. <laughs> you know, like about a a half inch by a quarter inch or something, a little bitty on the ball of my foot. So I knew that that was not good. Like, you know, I could feel my sock rubbing on it. And so I went to a pharmacia because I'd heard about Compede. So I bought some Compede. And I asked the person at the pharmacy if they would look at my foot and and see if that's what I needed. And I think it was a female. And she said, yeah, I'll look at it, but I'm not touching it. And I said, okay. <laughs> so I bought some Compete, and I put that Compete on there. And the Compete was a little triangular piece about the size, a little bit larger than a guitar pick kind of shaped like that. And I stuck that on there. And unfortunately, I found out later that Compede works great for some people and doesn't work worth a damn for other people. <laughs> and I was one of the latter. Because by a day or two later, either that same day or the next day, that little hot spot had grown to the exact size of that Compede patch. And it was the most painful thing. Every time, you know, of course, every time the ball on my foot touched the ground, the pain just shot through my foot. And every time I stopped walking, my whole foot throbbed. It was just unbearable. I had met these two girls from South Africa And one day I limped up to this little town, this little village where everybody was sitting outside and, you know, resting. Yeah. And uh, I walked up to them and said, hi. And they said, you don't look too good. And they wound up giving me these over-the-counter capsules that they had brought with them that had codeine in them. And they said, eat something first and then take a couple of those. So that's what I did. And that stuff worked good. But the, the story I want to tell you is that then we lost, I lost track of this girl and her friend. The girl's name was Nix from South Africa. And a couple of days later, Tom and I were walking to, and we ended up at this alberga in the middle of nowhere. And we walk out in the backyard and there's Nix hanging up clothes. She had washed her clothes and she's hanging them up. Now, I, I, we didn't expect to ever see her again. So I'm telling her about my blisters. She, well, she already knows about my blisters. And I'm getting ready to start doing my evening, uh, taking care of my blisters, you know, for the, for the night. She's some sort of caretaker back home. She takes care of... Uh, homebound people or something like that and she says you want me to you want me to doctor your foot for you and i said okay so like i put right here nick said sure she had a needle and even offered to take care of the blisters for me if i'd like sure i said and she headed back inside to her room while tom and i relaxed 
with cold beers in the shade of an umbrella-covered table and chairs. She came right back with a needle thread and some iodine. I propped my foot up in a white plastic lawn chair, and she set to work. It only took a few minutes, and I thanked her, and she said no problem and headed back inside. Now, I really didn't think much more about it, but as time went on, it occurred to me that a pretty amazing thing had just happened. For Nix, who made her living then as a professional caregiver, it probably was no big deal. But to me, the idea that this woman from halfway across the world, whom I just met a few days before, had carefully popped blisters on my feet and medicated them for me was amazing. I'm not sure I would have done it. I was extremely moved by it all. It was almost biblical, you know, the washing of feet and all that. And the more I thought about it, the more emotional I became. And I can still kind of get emotional even now when I think about it, because it was. It, I mean, who's going to take care of somebody's nasty feet that they hardly even know? Yeah. It was just amazing. Yeah, that's just sums up perfectly the spirit and the generosity and exactly what we were talking about earlier about the yeah. kindness and 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 as you said yeah. in that in that article of yours that I that I read uh, these that's somebody there who simply wants you to be happy so yeah you know to be it's just such a simple thing look we've run out of time john it's been okay. an a- absolute delight to spend an hour talking with you thanks for making yourself available to share your insights and your discoveries good luck in your future endeavors and keep on walking pilgrim buen camino yeah. Buen Camino, Dan. Thank you very much, sir. My guest this week was John H. Clark. You can find all of his books, including Camino, Laughter and Tears Along Spain's 500-Mile Camino de Santiago, and Finding God in Texas. They're all on Amazon, all of his books. That's it for another week, another journey together. If we were on the Camino, this last hour we shared together, we'd have walked side by side from the ruins of San Anton into Castrojeres. The American philosopher John Dewey had a message for us all. Arriving at one goal is the starting point to another. Thanks, as always, for your company. Until next week, I'm Dan Mullins. Buen Camino. Somewhere